Uh, please keep your Bibles open. Uh, my name is Luke Wu. I'm the pastor here at our church. And uh, just so everyone knows uh, how we study scripture here, uh, what we do at our church is what we call expository preaching. And what that means is uh, we take time to work through a particular book of the Bible. So back in January, uh, we started with the beginning of Romans chapter 1. And here we are. We are on the final chapter of this great, amazing book. And the reason why we do expository preaching, uh, going through all aspects of a particular book, is uh, we believe here at Renewal that all scripture is breathed out by God. profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so here, we are in the last chapter of Romans, and we have spent eight full months studying this amazing epistle, and we have studied the major contours of this book. And even in those eight months, we saw just how theologically rich, how, how spiritually enriching, and how amazing this letter is. And by no means do I want us to get the impression uh, that we covered all there is to cover in this book. We could have gotten much deeper. And, and I encourage all of you to continue studying this book on your own, to continue reading it. If we did go deeper in this series to study all the intricacies, uh, we would have taken a lot longer. Uh, John Piper at his church, uh, he preached 200 sermons on the book of Romans. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, one of the greatest preachers in England, did 366 sermons straight through uh, to preach in 30 years uh, this book. For us, it took about 30 messages, so we're close, about a tenth of that. Uh, but even with that, uh, I believe that our church has been growing uh, immensely uh, from this great uh, chapter, great uh, epistle, Romans. So here, uh, in this final chapter, just as a recap, what Paul is doing, he's, he's writing to the Roman Christians. Now, he's never met them before, but he knows of them. He knows certain people that he met along the way, and he's writing this letter, and his goal is to travel to Rome, to Italy, to be strengthened by the believers there, for himself to strengthen them by encouraging them, by teaching them. And then after a while, he plans on going to Spain. We saw that last week. Because his goal is to preach the gospel where, where the gospel has not yet been preached to the ends of the earth. And in that time, that was Spain. So Rome was to be a pit stop. so that he could fulfill this gospel mission. And now, as he writes this final chapter, you would assume that he would write uh, some, some greatly inspiring passage, something that talks about God and the heavenlies, and he does. But more importantly, he writes something as concrete and tangible as these names, these companions, these people. And I believe he does so because it very much fits with the overall purpose of how this gospel is going to be preached, how the gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the nation. So here this morning, we're going to study this chapter under three headings. Number one, our need for companionship. 
Our need for companionship. Number two, the basis for companionship. And finally, the goal or the results that follow. So our need, the basis, and the goal of companionship. So with that, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help as we study this passage together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that every aspect, every bit of your word is profitable for us. And Lord, that's how we see your word this morning. God, we do not gather just to to stimulate our minds. We do not gather just to be emotionally moved, but all together so that we can worship you so that our lives can be changed, so that you can be glorified. And Lord, the way that's going to happen is through your living word. This is your voice. Help us to embrace it as such, to know that this is life. So we pray that our hearts will be receptive. May your Holy Spirit convict where we need to be convicted, persuade us of our sin, and push us towards holiness. All for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So number one, uh, the need for companionship. If you look here with me, uh, Paul, he begins about 16 sentences uh, with that word greet. Greet this person. Greet that person. I want to apologize to Mike for having him read all these names, some of them very hard to pronounce, and it sounds redundant, doesn't it? Frankly, perhaps even boring to hear the same thing over and over again. Greet Mary, greet Andronicus, Junia, Urbanus, and Apelles, and so forth. And we might wonder, how can passages like this even be profitable for teaching, for reproof and correcting and training in righteousness? They're just names. And perhaps we want to put these passages along with the other ones, the the genealogies, all those Levitical laws, those things that you skim through in Scripture. But believe it or not, this passage is a goldmine. It's a goldmine for scholars because there are a group of people who study the origin of names. I didn't know that exists in the scholarly field. It's called onomastics. And there are a bunch of people who study each name, study the trace and how each name developed the meaning of it. And this is a goldmine to them because they can study just the development of these names and tell a lot about the, the culture and the environment that Paul was in. But here, I just want to point out three things that we can pick out even from these names, from these verses, verses 1 through 16. And the first is, these names show us that the Bible is not a mythical legend or some fabricated story written by the church. It is an actual historical document. And along with all the other parts of the Bible, from, from the creation of the world, to the incarnation of God, Jesus, to to his bodily resurrection. These aren't made up. They're not legends. They're not stories. They're actual events that happen. And so when we read passages like these, we see that there were actual people back then. These are living, real people. And these names might seem very foreign to us culturally, I don't think anyone names their kid Andronicus these days. And even in, in temporarily, that happened thousands of years ago. But as one scholar writes, we must remember that these brothers and sisters, 
They all drank from the same cup of human experience that you and I go through. They were and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Someday you will see them. You will see Andronicus. I'm very curious how Junia looks like, Prisca, Aquila. There was an actual person named Persis, an actual woman by the name of Phoebe, an actual husband and wife who risked their necks for Paul's life so that he could continue preaching the gospel. And this shows that the book of Romans, the whole Bible, it's not this mythological book of legends. It's not a fabricated story, but it's an actual record of events. If you study any fantasy, any legend, any story, fiction story from back then, It looks nothing like this. Perhaps you've read Homer's Odyssey. Let me read you the first line of that fiction, of that legend. It goes, Tell me, O muse of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide after he had sacked the famous town of Troy. Tell me all about these things, O daughter of Jove, from whatsoever source you may know them. That sounds like a legend. That sounds like a made-up story. That's how you write a legend. If Paul was writing a legend, he would not do very well. Because you don't begin a great legend with, hey, say hi to Rufus for me. Say hi to his mom. Hey, remember Andronicus? Remember when we used to hang out together? Give me a shout-out. That's not how you write legend. He writes this because he's actually greeting real people. And this shows that all these things we read in Scripture, they are actual events, trustworthy, beneficial for us, the living Word of God. So that's the first thing I want us to know. The second thing is we see from these names that in the early church, there was a great diversity of believers. We see much diversity in all of these names. It was diverse ethnically, socioeconomically, the backgrounds of all of these people, and they were all united from this one common faith in Jesus Christ. It shows the diversity of Christians even at Rome. You know, while Christianity, it began in Jerusalem, it began with Jesus and his 12 disciples. So initially, it began in that region. But by the time of Paul's writing, it had spread. And if you look and listen to all of these names, what do they sound like? Do they sound Jewish to you? Hermes, Odysseus, not Odysseus, uh, 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 Aristobulus, Epinatus, Olympus. They have a Greek ring to them, don't they? Why? Because they're all Gentiles. But not only are they Gentiles, they're also fellow Jews. Paul writes, my fellow kinsmen, people like Mary. And so here we see both Jew and Gentile being included in the same body of believers. And it shows the diversity that existed in the early church. It spanned across gender. Nine of these names are, are, are names of women. All of them having worked hard, having helped Paul and his minister, uh, ministers in their gospel journey. So it crossed all these gender stigmas. There was also socioeconomic diversity. In the time of Paul's world, it was a very common thing to do to name your child based upon your social status. So if you were rich and wealthy, high on the social ladder, there was a pool of names that you tend to use. 
On the other hand, if you were poor and you were on the bottom of the social ladder, there was a certain number of names that you used. We do a little bit of that today. To this day, my mom, she wanted my name to be Luke for two reasons. He's a Christian and he's a doctor. One out of two is not bad. And we see that much more back then. But when we study these names, we see that there were very wealthy people and also very poor people, even slaves. Guys like Prisca and Aquila, they had an estate. The early church met at their house, meaning they must have had a house big enough to fit all these Christians. Aristobulus and Narcissus, they're both head of an estate, meaning they were very well off. And these were names commonly used for those upper class. At the same time, we see about 10 of these names used commonly uh, for the servants and for the slaves. Names like Ampliatus, Urbanus. They're common names for, for the slaves and the servants back then. And it shows us how diverse the early church was. And thirdly, and this is what I want us to focus on. Not only do we see this is a real document, not only do we see the diversity in the church, this shows evidence that Paul was not a lone ranger missionary. He was not self-sufficient, but instead he was more than dependent on these specific brothers and sisters, his companions and co-workers of the gospel. And this should convince you and me just how much you and I need companions in our lives. There's about 33 names here. Two households, we see the names of mothers and sisters. And out of the 33 names... 24 of them are living in Rome. And I told you that Paul, he never visited Rome before. So the question is, how can Paul know all these specific people if he never visited Rome? How can that happen? And here's the answer to that. Most likely, all of the early Christians in Rome, they were all around the region all around the Roman Empire, specifically in about AD 49, Emperor Claudius, he expels all the Jews and all the Jewish Christians out of Rome. So all these early Christians, they had to live in various places, and as they did, they met Paul and his workers, and they continued to to preach the gospel in Corinth and Athens and in various places throughout the empire. And along that journey, Paul meets people like Prisca and Aquila, and they serve together. They worked together. We see specifically that Prisca and Aquila, they were tent makers along with Paul, making money to to fund their ministry. Now, about six years later, around 54 AD, all of these people were allowed to go back to Rome. The exile was annulled. And so all these people who are living with Paul, who are working with Paul, they go back to Rome. And so Paul, he knows these specific people that he lived with, that he worked with. And that's how he knows. And it goes to show just how highly Paul thought of these specific people and how much he was in need of them to continue his ministry for his own spiritual well-being. You know, when we think of Paul, we tend to think of this great missionary, this, this dominant, powerful figure, worker of the gospel, but that was far from the truth. You know, we know a little bit about how Paul looks like. And we know a lot about his ministry, and we know a little bit about his physical stature. There's one document in the middle of the 2nd century uh, called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. 
And it's not an inspired uh, biblical uh, document. It's a historical document. But in there, there's a physical description of what Paul looks like. And I'll read a portion of that for you. This certain man, he saw Paul coming. Paul was a man small in size. He was bulk-headed. I don't know what that means to this day, what bulk-headed means. He had crooked thighs. Imagine being described as one having crooked thighs. I looked it up. It meant that he was bow-legged. He couldn't even walk straight. He had his eyebrows meeting. You know what that means? He had a unibrow. His eyebrows meeting, rather long nose. And even after he bashed them, he says, yet he was full of grace. He was not an impressive figure. He even writes about himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that my bodily presence is weak. I'm not a good speaker, he even says. But precisely because he was weak, he needed people in his life. He needed fellow brothers and sisters. If he was going to spiritually be able to withhold all these trials and sufferings that he encountered in his journeys. He writes an account. He says, I've gone through extreme labor, multiple imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times receiving at the hand of the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods, one stone. Three times shipwrecked, a night and day adrift at sea. Danger from robbers, wilderness and toil and hardship. Hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul writes, who is weak? I am weak. And so when this happens to you this year, When you find yourself in toil and hardship, when you feel excluded, when you feel like life is just too hard, who do you have? Who are the names that you can write knowing that that person will be praying for you, will be encouraging you, saying things like, all things work for the good of those who love him. God has a plan and a purpose to glorify himself through you. Do you have specific people in your life who will be giving that kind of encouragement? Because in order to do that, you need to open up your lives. You need to be vulnerable. You need to take incentive and say, you know what? I want to be in your life. Will you be in mine? And without that, there is no way you're going to get through this year. Perhaps I can ask you, who are the people in your life that you are frequently being vulnerable to? To sharing about your relationship with God, to pray together. And I'm phrasing the question like that because I'm not asking, who are the people that you can go to? Because that's not it. I'm sure there's a lot of people you can go to, but who are the people that you are going to? To talk about how you're doing with God. To talk about your struggles, to pray together, to pray for that coworker or that student at lab, to so, to show them about Jesus. It is a priority to have specific people in our lives. Paul had specific people, and he had much love for them. He says, "Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord." How many people can you call my beloved in Christ in this church? He says, greet Andronicus and Junia. They were my fellow prisoners whom I spent time with. Greet Rufus and his mother. 
His mother has been like a mother to me, helping me in my faith. Are there these kinds of people in your life? And if not, are you willing to make that a priority this year? Because Christianity is not this individualized religion where, where all you need is some Hillsong praise music, a cup of coffee, and some good lighting, and you Instagram it. I actually saw someone Instagramming their Bible and coffee, and it says, getting my spiritual grow on. Hashtag no filter. And as much as God uses these personal, intimate times for you to grow, is that it? No. Growth happens in the context of people. If you pray that you want to be patient, does God zap you and you become patient? Or does he send those annoying people in your life so that you can grow and learn to be patient? If you want to learn to be loving, does God just magically zap you and you're loving? Or does he send difficult people to love in your life? It is in the context of people. Do you want to see how God cares for you? Do you see the brother and sister willing to give their lives for you, willing to cook for you, willing to invite you into their homes, pray for you? That's how you can see God's hand, God's provision. But it's going to take you to open up, to be vulnerable, to share your life with others. And perhaps this year, this year is the year that you take time to invest in people in this church, in your community groups as they start this week, in RCF. Because brothers and sisters, we are made for relationship. We are not simply encouraging this because it's convenient and just beneficial for us, but we by necessity need this kind of relationship. Genesis 1 talks about how God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are one in Trinity, and they're in what we call this eternal dance for all of time. And we see that it is out of their relationship with one another that they make man. They make all these things prior to man, and they say it is good, but when they make man, they say it is not good. Why? Because he does not reflect us. You can't have a relationship by yourself. Therefore, he creates woman to reflect the relationship that God has with himself. So by necessity, your spiritual DNA tells you you need relationship. And you cannot go long without it. And you need deep spiritual relationship, the one that Paul has. It becomes dangerous when you don't have it. That's when sin becomes ripe in your life. One commentator writes, sin wants to have man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him because sin wants to remain unknown. Perhaps you can testify. When you think about the times in your life when you are struggling with sin, when your relationship with God was, was just almost not even there, were there brothers and sisters in your life to guide you back to the truth, to guide you back to him? He says, if a Christian is in fellowship and confession with other brothers and sisters, he will never be alone, no matter where he is. 
Who are you pushing and encouraging to fight sin, to be more like Jesus? Who are your Priscus and, and your Achillas and your Juniuses and Andronicus? That's the command that Jesus gives before he goes. He's saying, I cannot be with you physically, but I will be with you in spirit. And a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. John chapter 13. Paul was not a lone ranger. And neither can we be if we are to faithfully live as God's people. Second point, the basis for companionship. What's the basis for this companionship? For any new person, if you're entering a new environment, whether it be a new school, a new job, a new neighborhood, one of the first questions that you ask yourself is, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? You know, that sense of uh, wanting to, to belong somewhere, it's, it's, it's evident in everyone. And that question always resounds, where do I fit? Where am I supposed to be? You know, every one of these campuses, these college campuses, they have some kind of student activity fair where, where all the clubs and organizations and even churches come out to tell them more about their work and their organization. RCF, we know, is usually in the back. And in that place, we see all these students come. And you can see it on their faces. They're looking for a place to fit in. They're looking for a place to belong. I remember when I went to school at Penn State, I went to one of these things. I saw one organization called the Basket Weaving Club. But believe it or not, people went there. Even if they never weaved a basket in their life because they wanted to belong somewhere. There's an anime club. And it doesn't matter where you are, as long as you're somewhere, as long as you know that you have people around you. For me, in freshman year, I joined the one thing that I knew I could do. I joined the, the a cappella group called Grace Notes. It was a Christian a cappella group. And it's because as soon as you enter some new environment, you want to make sure that you have people around you. You want to be a, a part of a larger uh, group, a larger community. But let me tell you something. Just because you are in a group does not make you feel like you belong in that group. Even at church, even in your community group, you know, there will always be a seat open for each one of you. You are always welcome in this church. But you will never feel like you belong to this church, that you're actually with this community until the day you feel like you're actually contributing to the group. Once that happens, then you feel a sense of ownership. Then you feel like, yes, these are my brothers and sisters. These are the people that I want to live life with. Once that happens, you sense and you feel like you're part of this group. You take any group, any club, any organization, religious or non-religious, that's how it works. You can attend, but once you have responsibility, once you see the things that they're doing as the things that you're concerned about, that's when you feel like you can identify with that group, how you see yourself contributing to the overall purpose, overall vision of that group. Now, I remember when I moved in elementary school, coming uh, from Korea to, to Downing Town, and I remember the first day uh, I was told that in America, you go to a thing called a bus stop to go to school. 
You don't walk to school. So I went to the bus stop, and I saw all these students, these younger students there. And unlike today, they weren't just huddled around playing smartphone games. To my surprise, they were playing soccer. And I found out that every morning they come 15 minutes before the bus comes to play soccer. Now, I was a first grader back then, and I could not keep up with these fifth graders. So I could not play with them, nor was I allowed to. But when I got there, they weren't, you know, mean to me. They welcomed me. They said hi to me, but I just watched. And even though I was physically there with them, I never felt like I was part of their group until one day when Scott Nugent, the guy who brings the soccer ball, came one morning empty-handed saying, I lost my soccer ball. And everyone's faces were so disappointed. And that was my moment. Because in my broken English, I said, I have soccer ball. (laughs) And I ran home, got my soccer ball, and I was welcomed like a hero. And from that day on, they did not know my name, but they knew he's the Asian (laughs) kid with the soccer ball. And I faithfully brought that soccer ball throughout that year. And that's how I made friends. It's a silly story, but that goes to show it's that the day that you feel like you're contributing to that group, that's when you feel like, I belong here. We have a common purpose. I never played soccer with them. I only watched. But I brought that ball. (laughs) That happens in any group. Perhaps you've been coming out to church, to community group, to RCF. But let me tell you this. That the day that you feel like, okay, these are my Andronicuses, my Priscus, my Achilles, the people who's going to risk their neck for me, that's going to happen when you feel like you and this brother, you and this sister are working towards the same thing, a common cause. See, what's important for us is not that you just have an open seat that's always going to be there for you, and you are more than welcome. But more than that, we want you to feel like you belong here. We want you to feel like that you have ownership in this church. And you'll never feel like that unless you consider, how can I contribute to God's glory with these brothers and sisters in this church? And once you feel like you see that yourself, your life, a part of that overall purpose, that's when you feel like you belong That's the common bond between Paul and his companions. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and woman, they did not naturally get along. They're not supposed to just gather along. That's why the whole Roman Empire was suspicious of them. But what was the common bond? What was the basis of their companionship? We are here to glorify God together. And once they're focused, once they're fixated on that, what happens is they start to bond in a deep and intimate way. And that's the basis of the relationships that you and I need to have. C.S. Lewis, he writes about this. He wrote a book called The Four Loves. And out of those four loves, one of those loves is called friendship. And he says friendship happens when 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 two people get together and they realize that they have a common interest, a common insight, and until that moment, all along, one person thinks, I'm the only one who has this interest. I'm the only one who wants this purpose. 
But then the day comes when you meet that friend. And he says, you know what the typical uh, beginning line is when two friends meet together? It goes like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one who did this. I thought I was the, but you share that interest with me. You share that common purpose with me. And right there, that's when friendship happens, he says. And he said, this companionship, it's special. It's unique. It's not like the other ones. For example, like romantic love between man and wife. You know, the purpose of that kind of love is for them to be entrenched in one another. You can give two lovers just an empty room and they can just sit and stare at each other and they will be happy. And he says, you cannot do that between two friends. Can you imagine just sitting in a room staring at your friend in the awkward silence? He said, it can't happen because in friendship, not only are you facing one another, but together side by side, you're facing at something, facing ahead, a common purpose. That's when friendship happens. If you think about it, that's how all the great stories happen of companionship. The fellowship of the rings, doors and elves, common enemies, but brought together with the common purpose of destroying this one ring. Remember the titans in such a racially charged school and environment. These students coming together, not only to win the state championship, but to be an example how there can be unity. Do you see that common purpose? That's what brought them together. And to this day, my closest friends are my high school basketball teammates. You know, no one would have ever suspected me to be friends with them. And sometimes I do uh, hang out with them. But you know what? All we talk about is our basketball games in high school. There's much, not much to talk about. Sometimes we'll talk about LeBron James, Steph Curry, And then after an hour or so, we have to go back home because there's no common purpose anymore. I have a couple of Christian friends who I haven't met in years. But when I meet with them, what is God doing in your life? How is God challenging you? And we talk through the ends of the night because there's so much to talk about, so much that God is doing. Sis Lewis says, The most pathetic people, it's very harsh here, the most pathetic people are those who simply want friends. Who simply want friends. And you know what? They will never make any. Because that's not how friendship works. Because you can't simply want friends, but you must want a common purpose. And as you reach towards that purpose, you will have friends join you. That's the difference between friendship and just simply people that you're just filling a seat with. He says, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Jesus says, who are my companions? Who are my brothers? Matthew 12, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak with Jesus. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's the basis for genuine companionship. Finally, the goal of companionship, the goal, 
here we see that the goal of this companionship actually is a two-part goal. And here's what I mean. If you look at your passage, we see that Paul, he writes a final doxology in verse 25, a final prayer for these Roman Christians. And it's a prayer of empowerment. He's praying for them to be strengthened. And now he's not just simply praying for them to be strong, but he's praying to remind them that there is God. There is the one who will make them strong. Now, what is the purpose? What is the point of them being strengthened? And we see it's so that they can be brought to an obedience of faith. And that's the first goal. So that in your life, there can be an obedience of faith, an obedience that conforms to the likeness of Jesus, an obedience that that personally engages other people with the love of Jesus, an obedience that's motivated by, by what Jesus has done for you. That's the kind of obedience that God wants in your life. That's the first part. Now, as you focus on that, as you make it your aim this year, to fight sin, to be like Christ, the way that we read in Philippians 3. Nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. As you focus on that, the second goal happens. And you know what that is? In verse 27, God receives the glory. To God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. As you focus on bringing about an obedience of faith in your life and in the lives of others, that's what ultimately brings God glory. That's what this is all about. That's what Romans is about. That phrase, the obedience of faith, we see that in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, I'm writing this letter to you so that in your life there will be an obedience of faith. He plants that there. And in chapter 16, he says, I have written these things to you so that in your life there will be an obedience of faith. So the purpose of all that he wrote, all the things that we learned, God's wrath against evil, how religion cannot save you, how we are saved by grace and by faith and in Christ alone, how we are dead to sin and alive in Christ, the adoption that we have, the sovereignty of God, how he works all things for the good of those who love him, for the way that we still fight against this perennial sin, the the inseparable love of God, all those things. You know what the point of that is? So that there can be an obedience of faith in your life, an obedience that shows in the context of people of brothers and sisters oftentimes we think romans we think of the gospel as something that we just receive and we say thank you god thank you for that spot in heaven thank you for this eternal life now i can be free from wrath i can be free from hell but there is so much more to that so that in your life starting now you can see what it feels like to taste the glory of God in your life. After going through a day of classes or work or trying to struggle to bring some kind of order in the chaos of your home to to show your children what it means to love Jesus, in the midst of all that, to put your head on the pillow at night to say, you know what? I gave this day to God and his glory. And if you're able to say that, There's nothing you could ever want. Jared Wilson, he says that when we're saved, we're not simply saved by good works, but in addition, 
after receiving this gospel of grace, we are saved for them. Meaning, not that your salvation is dependent on your good works, but the evidence of genuine gospel-received salvation will produce an obedience of faith that says, I do want to grow this year. I do want to grow with others. I do want to take my spiritual life to the next level. And I know I'm going to need people in my life because I've been doing it by myself and it's just too hard. Now, earlier I shared how Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they were in this eternal dance, this trinity. And think and consider with me just how intimate their relationship was with one another. Tim Keller says, the longer you know someone, the deeper it hurts when that person leaves you. It's true, right? He says, if someone comes up to you after service, and you never met that person before, and he says, I hate your guts, it wouldn't affect you that much, right? But what if your mother came to you after service and said, I never want to see you again? It hurts a lot more. Multiply that by infinity between God the Father and Jesus the Son. Where for the first time in all eternity, on that cross, God turned his face away. God gave him the wrath that you and I deserve. That companionship that Jesus had with God was severed for the first time. Have you thought about why? Is it just to give you a ticket to heaven? No, so that you and I can have this companionship with your maker and in turn with one another. The brothers and sisters you see next to you, they were bought with the price of the living God. And we need to confess if we simply see them as people we just worship with and and greet with for about 20 seconds every Sunday. Just as you were bought with the price, so was that brother and sister next to you. And if you are made in the image of God who has this perfect relationship, how much more should we want to have that with one another? By this they will know you are my disciples, Jesus says. So what are you living for? What is your purpose this year? How do you see the people around you? I remember in high school, my youth group pastor would drive me home after youth group on Friday night. And I used to live in Downingtown, and and we met in Havertown. And he would drive 45 minutes every Friday night, about 10 or 11 at night. And it was just me and him. And now we were both tired. He was very tired. I could tell he did not want to drive me home, and he was trying to fake it. And, and at that time, I wasn't the greatest youth group student. I actually made ministry very hard for him. I don't think I was a Christian back then. And one night, out of nowhere, he just goes, Luke, what are you living for? What are you living for? Now, put yourself in my shoes. I'm a very bad youth group student. He's frustrated. He's tired. He's driving about 85 miles per hour on Route 202. And I'm thinking, this is it. (laughs) He wants to go home, and he's going to take me with him. And so I'm just scared for dear life. And at that moment, I didn't know the impact of what he's saying. But to this day, I remember those words. What are you living for? 
And I want to ask you that question. Perhaps not in a death-defying situation, but with you. With these brothers and sisters, what are you living for? Do you have people in your life that you can say, for all eternity, we're going to have this common purpose to glorify God. And with that, there will also be eternal relationship. It's going to take intention. It's going to take vulnerability. And it's going to take commitment. And we see Paul made that commitment because Jesus made that commitment to him. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today, Jesus made a commitment to be in relationship with you. And in turn, will you make a commitment to him? And the first tangible way you can do that is to see these people next to you as the people God sent into your life to glorify your maker, your God. And what happens throughout that course of time? You see yourself grow. You see an obedience of faith. You see your life bringing glory to God. And you say things like, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. Yet, I am not what I once was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. John Newton. Amazing grace. Paul concludes with this final encouragement. Brothers and sisters, give glory to God. Sola Deo Gloria. May that be the mission and vision and heart of this church for this year. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, after the message, we invite everyone to take a couple of minutes and to pray on your own. And perhaps God is convicting you